Welcome to our missions course entitled A Light to the Nations. This is lesson three, methods for world missions, methods for world missions. And if you'll see on your notes, let me make this statement right up front. The mission of the church is carried out through the close working together of the church and missions agencies. What brought Kevin Abeg and I together years ago was the belief that it is the close working together of the church and missions agencies that will enable the church to fulfill God's mission to make disciples of the nations. For that to happen, indigenous, self-supporting, and self-propagating churches must be planted, and those churches must have a vision to plant in every people group. And that's a key phrase I want you to keep in mind as we go through this methods for world missions. Churches are key and primary, but because of the unique challenges to cross-cultural, linguistic, and worldview barriers, missions agencies are vital. What is needed is a close working together of both. I believe that Kevin and Claudia here at Palm Vista and serving as pillars provides an incarnational model for this. The last three weeks of the class, Kevin will explore the real world life and workings of missionaries, starting with a look at missions movements throughout the history, moving to a discussion of how the gospel is presently going forward today, and ending with a personal application for us at Palm Vista. Now, let's look at one missions agency that we as a Southern Baptist Church work with and the vision, mission, and values that agency holds. Of course, I'm speaking of the International Mission Board, IMB, of the Southern Baptist denomination. Kevin will discuss the missions agency he currently serves with, United World Missions, in the following classes. So let's take a look at that. In your notes, the IMB vision, mission, and values. And as we go through these, I want you to remember some of these terms because we're going to trace back where some of these terms came from. And when you read these, this mission and core values, guys, this took a long time to come up with. There's a lot of, of work that went into getting this verbiage. And as you study world missions, you will see that this, these aren't just assumed, but people have labored long and hard to come up with something that's accurate that helps guide us when we go out and do missions. So, what is the vision of the IMB? Our vision is a multitude from every language, people, tribe, and nation, knowing and worshiping our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the mission? IMB partners with churches to empower limitless missionary teams who are evangelizing, discipling, planting, and multiplying healthy churches. That's key. And training leaders among unreached peoples and places for the glory of God. What are the core values? First, we commit to obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and to God's inerrant word. <laughs> That's not assumed in any given missions agency. All right, That's key. Two, we commit to living a life of personal holiness in imitation of Jesus Christ and bringing glory to God the, the Father in everything we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number three, we believe Jesus Christ is God's only provision for salvation. That's not assumed in many missions agencies. No time to go through this. But to say that Jesus and Jesus alone and, and the knowledge of Jesus alone and faith in Christ alone is the way to salvation, there are some people that don't fully embrace that. You'd be surprised. Talk to me later. We can, we'll discuss it. Four, we seek to provide all people an opportunity to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel in their own cultural context. We'll get to that more later. Five, we evangelize through proclamation, discipling, equipping, and ministry. Now listen, this is key. Underline this one. That results in indigenous, 
reproducing Baptist churches. Now you can take the Baptists out of there, right? It's a Baptist document. But man, indigenous and reproducing, that's the only way we're going to reach the world. It cannot be uh, Western-centric, U.S.-centric. There has to be churches in those countries that have a vision to reproduce. That's hard to do. It's hard to do. God can do it. Six, we serve churches to facilitate their involvement in the Great Commission. Don't just think Palm Vista or Western churches, but churches in other countries. One of the visions that I had very early in my calling in the Lord was to equip Hispanics to go into Muslim world and be missionaries. They often require far less than a North American missionary. They physically look a little bit more like the people they're going to. If you go to Morocco and look at the the Muslims in Morocco, over 32 million Muslims, they're not Arabs. They're the Berber people. They they look just like the Spanish. Olive complexion, the dark hair. They're Berber people. When you have a Hispanic person that goes and lives in Morocco, they don't stand out like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed person. God bless blonde-haired, (laughs) blue-eyed. Nothing wrong with that. Um, seven, we partner with Baptists and other Christians around the world in accordance with the IMV guidelines. And eight, we understand and fulfill God's mission through God's word, prayer, and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, just real quick, for the Baptists, they've broken the world down into affinity groups. So let me just give you those groups. It's not on your notes, but just listen. All right, these are groups. These are nine affinity groups. Grouping of people associated by language, culture, and worldview. All right, this is not an exact science, but listen up. So you have the American peoples, North and South America. You have the European peoples. You have the North African and Middle Eastern peoples. You have the Sub-Saharan African people. You have the Central Asian peoples, the South Asian peoples, the East Asian peoples, and the Southeast Asian peoples. It's an Asian world, folks. If you include India, uh, Asia has over 61% of the world's population. It's big. And then you have the deaf peoples, which I find fascinating. And I'd love the Lord to send us some interpreters and reach out to the deaf. That's an interesting community. May it be with All right, so what's a people group? A people group, I think this is in your notes, is a group of people that possesses a common language, culture, and worldview. Here's the question. How does a people group become Christian? Not do how do individuals become Christian. I think that's on there, right? How do people groups, how does a people group become Christian? Okay, yeah. Here's the deal. The call of God is great, in your notes. Christ's authority is ultimate, and his glory is our motivation. The question then becomes, how are we to send the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a sin-darkened world? Now we get into methods, and there are two contrasting methods. And Okay, as I share this, you're going to see some names on there. You're going to see Donald McGavern. You're going to see Roland Allen. You're going to see three names. You're like Rufus Anderson, Henry Vinn, and John Nevius. I list them there because these are men dating back to the mid-19th centuries that did a lot of the thinking and a lot of the strategizing that we benefit from today. Because prior to some of these men, this first method was really the way missions was done, and sometimes it's still done this way. So let's talk about the colonial institutional method. Let me describe it. Pioneer missionaries did everything. Meant they were in charge, quote unquote. As churches grew, listen, they remained, quote unquote, in charge. They saw needs, so they built institutions to meet those needs, hospitals, schools, farms, etc. What are some of the characteristics of churches born of the mission station approach? Write that down. Mission station approach. Well, first, 
and this is a good thing, membership was literate and often greatly transformed. That's important. You truly had a gathered church. You had strong institutions, but weak witness. Because typically they were pulled, people were pulled out of their culture. We'll see this in a moment. The bridges they had were either destroyed or greatly damaged. And they were gathered into a mission station place. And so they were very well taught. Uh, some, a lot of these organizations were greatly overstaffed with missionaries. Uh, it fostered an attitude of preserving the mission station. And it was definitely dependent on mission funds. Now, don't get offended by what I'm about to say. I'm saying it gently. But the results were, quote, civilizing the natives, unquote. And it was an unconscious, well-intentioned racism. So some of the examples of this approach, many Roman Catholic missions. By the way, you know the Roman Catholic did missions far better than we did for hundreds of years. The Protestants were late to the game. It wasn't until guys like Nevius and Venn and, and some guys that preceded them that really had this vision of going out with the gospel. And really where missions agencies grew up. Because the Roman Catholics had a mission agency. It was the Jesuits and the monks, and the, right? Uh, but the Protestants saw them as really kind of extreme, weird people. Study the Jesuits, okay? I mean, these guys were the Airborne Rangers SEAL teams, right? Uh, and so the Protestants said, these guys are, are, are way out here. It's just the church. But missions didn't happen. It wasn't until the Moravians and Count Zinzendorf and missions agencies were born and some new thinking that missions took off in the Protestant world. It's one of the reasons uh, the Latin American world is so underserved. Because we never got the Reformation. We, we never got this because the Protestants never went. The Catholics went, man. I mean, you know, go watch the movie The Mission. Interesting movie. All right, many China and India missions and many African missions had this colonial view. All right, enter our first man here, Roland Allen. Roland Allen was an Anglican missionary in China from 1895 to 1903. And for a few years after he came off the missions field, he pastored an English parish. Then for 40 years, he wrote on missionary principles. And his most famous work, I would encourage you to get it. It's called Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. In that book, Allen describes and examines how Paul came to visit places that he did. He looks at the conditions in the social and religious world about A.D. 50. It's fascinating. His conclusion, Paul enjoyed no particular advantages in proclaiming the gospel. He wasn't a superhero. He shows how Paul presented the gospel. He looks at miracles, finances, the content of his preaching. He stresses, this is key, the short term devoted by Paul a short amount of time devoted by Paul to training converts before they were baptized and the rapidity with which Paul appointed local church leaders longing to take the gospel to other places and people. He deals with the problems of authority and discipline. Here's the conclusion. It is what one's own church thinks that ultimately influences an offender to mend his ways. Not what the Western church thinks. Remember I talked about Africa some of the situations there. It's when, that, when the biblical values are owned in a local indigenous church by indigenous leaders, and, it's, and it's, the missionary is gone by and large. If he's there, he's just serving the, the indigenous leadership. That's when really transformation occurs. 
Focuses, uh, Alan focused on church unity and fellowship rather, the import, rather than the importation of Western systems artificially imposed upon the young congregations. He challenged the old colonial approach. Missionaries who set up camp and did not keep seeking to reach the lost. All right. Let's go to 1955. Donald McGavern wrote a book called The Bridges of God, another really good book to read if you're interested in missiology. If you think I might be calling you, if you're a young person, read these books. These are seminal works. We wouldn't agree with everything in them, but it helps to, for you to understand how the thinking developed. Uh, in this book, by the way, uh, McGavern's passion as a missionary in India is seen uh, in his writings. He was a missionary in India for, for a season. So he talked about church planting movements led by indigenous peoples, right? Not by us, by indigenous peoples. And he talked about you can't depend on outside resources. And in a moment, we're going to discuss the three self-principles that Nevius and Venn and Anderson developed. And, and McGavern benefited from those. But what he, this is what he said. He said, traditional missions burned bridges. It uprooted people from their culture. It broke relationships and connections, and it destroyed the bridges over which the gospel could flow, hence the bridges of God. Now, this is going to happen. There's going to be a temptation for this to happen anyways. Remember the Jane people we talked about last week? When one of the young men was converted in a university fellowship by an American missionary, when he came home and told his parents about Jesus Christ dying on the cross, they forbid him contact with the missionary or he had to leave their home. So you've got to fight with that anyways. But if your whole system is pull them out and bring them to a mission station, and again, this was more in Africa and India and China. I realize today's world's a little different, but it can still happen functionally. Right? You lose your con- It can happen to us. We lose our contact with the people to whom we are most suited to witness to. The people in your high school, people in your work, people in your neighborhood. You know? We can be seen as so separate that, you know. All right, so now let's move to the three mission strategists Rufus Anderson, Henry Venn, and John Nevius. Rufus Anderson, Henry Venn, and John Nevius. So in the middle of the 19th century, the time was ripe, so it's the middle of 1800s. The time was ripe for some fresh thinking. This was aptly realized in the influence of these three outstanding mission strategists. Henry Venn was the general secretary of the Church Missionary Society in London. And Henry Venn was the one who set the goal of establishing churches that would be self-governing, self-supporting, and self-propagating. So catch that. Self-governing, self-supporting, self-propagating. He taught as soon as a church was functioning in these three ways, the missionaries should go to regions beyond, quote-unquote, where they could begin the process again. The aim of mission was to start churches that would start churches that would start churches. Now, for us today, we're like, oh, yeah. They were, doing, they were thinking this way in the middle of the 1800s. Pretty radical, right? So churches that would start churches, that was their view. Churches that were self-sufficient and independent of the missionary and indigenous in appearance and activity. That was radical in the mid-1800s. Rufus Anderson simultaneously, yet independently of Henry Venn, this is interesting, was the secretary of the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. Rufus Anderson arrived at practically the same basic mission principles. And so their works started to to gather some steam. The task of mission, according to Anderson, was to preach the word and gather converts into churches. 
These congregations were to be led by the local people. All auxiliary enterprises, schools, hospitals, printing presses, and the like, were to be solely for evangelism and for the edification of the church. And then John Nevius. John Nevius took the strategies of Vin and Anderson, modified them a little bit, uh, and he was part of the Presbyterian missions movement in China. I believe, I believe Ruth Graham Bell, or Ruth Bell Graham, Johnny, Billy Graham's, Johnny Graham's, Billy Graham's wife, right? I think she grew up on the mission field in this world, in this Presbyterian missionary world in China. Um, so anyways, Nevius was a Presbyterian missionary in China. He sought to place more responsibility on the local believers while leaving them in their usual place in society. In other words, Nevius encouraged the development of a volunteer, unpaid corps of national evangelists who would be trained by rigorous Bible study, and I think that's where we can serve those movements, and practical experience. His fellow workers in China did not adopt Nevius's plan. But the missionaries in Korea did. And if you know anything about the Presbyterian Church in Korea, it is exploding with growth. And the amazing success of the Presbyterians in Korea is partly attributed to his idea. So let's drop into the second method, what's called the indigenous principle method. You see it on your notes there? All right. So let's describe it. And I'm going to give you some scriptures on this too, so you can jot these down. First of all, it's self-governing. So I'm just going to read to you, jot this down, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, and Titus 1, 5 to 9. So 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 13, and Titus 1, 5 to 9. And I'm going to go to the Titus scripture for the sake of time. It's a little shorter. So basically, Paul is speaking to Titus about this church in the island of Crete that's a little messed up. And he says this in verse 5 of Titus 1. This is why I left you in Crete. Interesting, he left Titus in Crete. Paul's already moving on to other mission fields. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one... Okay, you know, you know all that part. Okay? The idea is, this is a biblical idea. All right? Paul wasn't ruling all these churches as some great apostle that everybody listened to and like a pope. wasn't. He trusted God, trusted the word of God, Train men to be there, and then those men were to train elders, and those churches were to be self-governing, too. Self-supporting. A little harder to see this as clearly, but if you go over to 1 Corinthians 9, you find something interesting. 1 Corinthians 9, 8 through 12. 1 Corinthians 9, 8 through 12. And Paul, writing to the church that he planted in Corinth, says, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is, is it too much for if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? What, what I think you see there is you see a church that has money. And what he's addressing is they're not supporting those missionaries and those ministers. And that's wrong. He also speaks, and I'm not going to read anything there, but in 2 Corinthians 9, 2 Corinthians 9, verses 1 to 5, he speaks of an offering for the suffering saints in Jerusalem. You can think of Jerusalem as the, send, of the ultimate sending place. And Corinth is in uh, modern-day uh, Greece. And he's saying, raise up money to send to the starving believers in Jerusalem. There's a drought in Jerusalem. So again, they had money. They were self-supporting. That's the goal. 
And number three, self-propagating. Self-propagating. I would argue the entire New Testament epistles uh, makes this point, but let's just read one. Colossians 1, 3 through 14. Why Colossians? Because Paul never, never made an appearance in Colossae. It's one of the churches he never saw. Okay? Um, and so Colossians 1, 3 through 14, listen to what it says. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it does so among you since the day you first heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. I'm going to stop there. Actually, I'm going to read the next verse. Verse 7. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It's all over the place. The gospel spread through Asia, right? Colossae is in modern-day Turkey. It's one of the the seven churches in the the book of Revelation. Um, It's in that area. I don't know if it's addressed directly in Revelation, but... So the idea is, these are self-propagating churches. What are some of the characteristics of this indigenous principle method? Self-governing, self-supporting, self-propagating. Well, number one, the pastors have relatively little education. Now, this is where you can see, you know, if you have a colonial mentality, you got to, you know, train all these pastors like somebody who's had 10 generations of Christianity and can go to, you know, Westminster Seminary. That's never going to happen, right? Even as, as, as late is when I was considering playing a church with the Presbyterians some 27 years ago. There were precious few minorities. Because one of the requirements back then to plant a church, you had to have a master's of divinity. You had people that were godly men. Just didn't have the opportunity to get that education. And it's funny. And then what do you do to them? You yank them out of their community where they're incredibly effective and, take, and send them up to you know, Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And again, don't be offended by this, by, by in some very affluent white community. And three years later, they come out, their heads filled with knowledge, but they've lost all their connections. And the people in their community think, hey, you know, what, are you, you white now? <laughs> you know, uh, or you take a guy from the jungles of wherever, and, you know, a lot of them, you bring them to the United States, they don't want to go back, <laughs> which I kind of understand, you know. So, so the idea is, how do we educate them there? But they're not going to be as well educated. Usually we're talking temporary buildings. There's just not the funds to build these mammoth facilities all over the world. The membership is often illiterate and ignorant. That's just the way it is. But they don't have to remain that way. Uh, These churches are often scattered, difficult to reach with medical aid. They're way out there because they've stayed with the people they grew up with. Yet, they're surprisingly stable because they're not dependent on somebody else. And when that somebody else either gets sick or gets tired of the mission field or gets 65 or 70 and the agency said, come home, they leave and it collapses because it's all dependent on that one person. Mm-hmm. By the way, all of this it can apply to Palm Vista, right? Big time. Um, and they're not dependent on missions funds, mission funds. Here are some five advantages to a people movement or an indigenous principle method. Number one, you have many permanent churches on foreign soil. Many permanent churches on foreign soil. Number two, they are naturally indigenous. They are naturally indigenous. That makes sense. 
Number three, this is the exciting one. You have the spontaneous expansion of the church. It is a natural outcome. Spontaneous expansion of the church. It's not foreign. It's our people. And then our people are going out with all their contacts and connections. Spontaneous expansion of the church is natural. Number four, enormous possibilities of growth. Enormous possibilities of growth. Now, I will say this. Where we've seen this, the dark side of this is that a lot of that growth can be doctrinally deficient. And then in that growth, you have some pretty scary doctrines and even super apostles that aren't apostles at all who built the people. We all know that, right? I mean, if you, if you know churches in Central America, I can tell you the names, okay? I know of some in Africa, Nigeria. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, but sadly, the leaders lack integrity and training, so the doctrine is no good. Okay, all right, but hey, missions is messy. And if, I think if you look at the churches in the New Testament, they weren't exactly perfectly <laughs> pristine. So, and then number five, number five, they provide a sound pattern of becoming Christian within one's own context. That one's in, write that down. They provide a sound pattern, a sound pattern of becoming Christian, of becoming Christian in one's own context. One's own content. I don't have to become a Westerner to be a Christian. I don't have to change the way I, I dress. I don't have to change the way I eat. If you go to the Jain people, um, you're going to become a vegetarian. Why not? To reach them. I'm all things to all people. To meet them where they are, to move them to where they need to be. You're not going to wear leather goods. Get rid of your beautiful leather, leather shoes. There's nothing wrong with it. You're going to do everything you can do You'll never be them. You'll do everything you can do not to offend them, not to put a stumbling block before the gospel that isn't against the Bible. And then when it takes off in their community, um, it's going to be amazing. By the way, I've got to share this with you. Go to Fox News online and, or, or do a Google search of uh, Parkinson's disease surgery. I don't know if anybody saw this. It's an amazing video. It's from Southwest India of a woman with Parkinson's disease. And they show her hand shaking like that. And they show surgeons making an incision in her skull. And as soon as they cut this, I didn't understand it. I read it three times. I didn't understand it. They cut something that's okay to cut. Her hand stopped shaking. Her symptoms went away. It's revolutionary surgery. It's at the Jane University in that city. J-A-I-N. Because remember I told you the Jains, though they're very radical, even the Hindus say they're not Hindus. They're known for education and doing good works. And they're brilliant people, good businessmen. And you've got, you see these Indian physicians, they're all Jains. It's the Jain Hospital associated with the Jain University, where I just did my case study on. It wasn't in Bangalore, but it was, it was Bangalore, Bangalore. I said that wrong. Bangalore, thank you. Uh, it was in another city, but it was Southwest India. So right there is just an example, man. God, think of God's grace, right? His, his, his general, just the grace he gives us. He gives these people the opportunity to study. They say this surgery is so precise. I mean, this little thing they have to cut is microscopic. When you do it right, this, this woman shook so badly she couldn't sleep. Her kids were beside themselves. She, and it shows her afterwards, her hand's perfectly steady. That's God's grace, right? Now, it's not salvific. There's a lot of good coming out of these people. Right? So anyways, that's the Janes. All right, let's bring this thing home, shall we? Uh, then we'll have some questions. 
So what are the four stages in mission national church relationships? And again, let me just say, I'm really excited about Kevin teaching next, next three weeks because he's taught me this. And I remember him saying things like this from the very beginning of his time here, even his heart for how he cared for missionaries on the mission field. And, and please pray for them. They're going to be in Costa Rica for three months this summer. And they're going to be training, caring for, loving missionaries in a wonderful missions organization. It used to be called Latin America Mission. Now it's United World Mission. Um, people have given their lives there. But, you know, there's ways they can do it better, right? <laughs> and they're caring for them personally. But listen to these four stages in mission national church relations. I don't know if I had these words here, but write down the word pioneer underneath there. Pioneer. So the first stage is, and Paul did this, the missionary does nearly everything because there's no national church. I mean, you walk into a place with no gospel, right? You're not going to let them preach the first Sunday, you know, because they don't know what to preach. So you're doing everything for a while. All right. But then there's a national church. God begins birthing a church, converts to Christ. Next is, I'm going to say, either paternal, P-A-T-E-R-N-A-L, or you can put parental, either one, either word's fine. Paternal or parental. This is where the missionaries lead and train nationals for leadership. So the missionaries lead and train nationals for leadership. Next, partnership. Partnership. Missionaries and nationals work side by side as equals. And again, this is I remember hearing this from Kevin. I mean, I agree with it. You know, but it's hard, man. If you're the if you're the person, you're the couple that's been there for 30 years. You kind of know you can do it better. What's the temptation? You just do it all. By the way, that temptation exists in Palm Vista with our children. We're afraid to give them opportunities and risks. You know? But if, if, we, if, we, if we never move to this phase, leaders are never truly trained and released and deployed. And they'll do it differently than us. And sometimes that bothers us. I've got to say one more thing. So Danny Jones was just recently with us. They took a cruise and they, they dropped their car off at our house and we had it for 12 days. They just got back. Man, I so respect this guy. He's retired. He's given it to Aaron Osborne. And he said to me, he goes, you know, Al, it's been hard. Because he's still kind of in the loop. He goes, I watch him do something. He goes, oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Then he goes, but my way isn't the only way. And he's, he's at peace and joyful. That is the gospel. Because <laughs> that usually doesn't work well. When the founding pastor remains, usually it doesn't go well. And he's never drawn people to himself. He said, no, they're the leaders, and they're doing great. Even though personally you may think, ah, I wouldn't do it that way. It's normal, right? I, in our homes, that's normal. Get over it. Let them do it their way. You know? All right. And then finally, participation. Participation. Whenever I say stuff like that, I always look over at my children and go, oh, I'm so sorry if I didn't do that. Because <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> I did a little, right? <laughs> All right, participation. This, I love this one. This I've heard from my man, Kevin, and I truly believe him. Missionaries serve under the direction of the national church. I know that's, that's one of his passions. Early on, we talked about this. Missionaries serve under the direction of the national church. So in partnership, they serve side by side as equals, truly equals. But in participation now, it's missionaries serve under the direction of the national church. So you ready for the question? Jot this question. Did I put it in your notes? Okay, so jot this question down. How can we move from pioneer to participation? 
How can we move from pioneer to participation? Come back next week to find out. How can we move? You're welcome, Kevin. How can we move from pioneer to participation? Come back next week to find out. All right, listen. Before we end this and pray, and we'll have questions. This applies to Palm Vista. I don't know that we've done the greatest job in this. We're trying. It's because of human nature. This applies to your family, to your children. Isn't this the whole thing of them growing up and they hit that 18? It's not that you say, get out of here. No, that, they're always your children, but you're moving, right? At some point, the whole equals thing happened. And then there are times where you're, uh, you're under their direction. And trust me, when you're wearing adult pampers, you will be under their direction. <laughs> be nice to them now. <laughs> when you can't remember your name, isn't that what the Bible says? One day someone else will guide you. So it's going to happen. We fight against it. And, and when we do, we stifle leadership, we stifle creativity, and uh, we stifle growth. But God is kind. So let's pray, and then we'll have a question or two. Well, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us not only look, about, look at this for missions, though it's very needed. The world population is growing somewhere around 30%. The Christian church is maybe growing a little less in percentage. It is growing. Thank you for that. But it's, it's really not keeping up. Uh, Lord, we, we need methods that are certainly fueled by your spirit, based on your word, trusting you. But, oh, Lord, show us how to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. Lord, give us, give us a joy in this incredible fruitfulness and, and this, 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 yeah, birthing of spiritual children and healthy churches that look like those people. Please forgive us where we've demanded things to be done our way. Or please forgive us for a lack of faith to trust you for all the mistakes that will be made by those that are younger than us. But, but let us release them and trust you and realize that what will be gained there is far more than just doing it as well as I could do it right now. But we're talking 20, 30, 40 years of leaders being developed and built and exponential growth of the church in each people group and culture and language that looks like them, that is biblical, but culturally looks like them. This is what we pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done for the glory of your name, Lord Jesus, your name alone. Amen.